The text for this morning's sermon is Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. If you'll turn in your Bibles there with me, we'll read that. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If any one would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you leave out of count the tragedies and heartache of miscarriages, and if you leave out of account the genocide of abortion, the number of Children who die before they reach the age of five every year is about 14 million. If you could put a face on every one of those children, if you could hear the wheezing of the whooping cough, if you could feel the final, last, silent limpness in your arms, there would be an ocean of grief in the world. About... 10 million of those 14 million babies who die, die from about five simple, treatable diseases. Five million die from various forms of diarrhea that could be healed with simple oral rehydration therapies. About three million die from whooping cough and tetanus and uh, measles. Those three diseases that could be healed with one simple $5 injection. And about 2 million die from various respiratory diseases, mainly pneumonia, which could be easily healed by 50-cent antibiotic. So 10 million children born die mainly because they are outside the reach of what we just take for granted. They are among what's called the absolute poor. There are 800 million absolutely poor people in the world. 70 million of these 800 million live on the brink of starvation all the time at any given moment. About 400 million of those 800 million absolute poor beyond the 70 million who are on the brink of starvation, do not get the minimum critical daily dietary requirements. 100 million children in the world are always hungry. Always. They never get enough to eat. I don't know how you compute these things, but it might help just to add this little statistic Of the 800 million absolutely poor in the world, about 195 million are professing Christians. You know, even if Jesus hadn't said any stunning things about children, ministry to children, the sheer numbers today would would grip us. 
About a third of the six and a half billion people in the world are under 15 years old. There are 90 countries, at least, whose population is 40% under 15, and there are at least a half a dozen countries like Zimbabwe and Kenya that have half their population under 15 years of age. Increasingly, the children in the world are victims not only of disease and famine, but also of violence. There's a paragraph I want to read you from a letter that I got from Robert Seipel, the president of World Vision, day before yesterday, just to crystallize in one instance the kind of violence in war-torn areas especially perpetrated against children. One of our sponsored children, a 14-year-old Palestinian boy living on the West Bank, was caught by 16 Israeli soldiers as he was writing graffiti on a wall. The soldiers placed him up against the wall and shot him four times in the eye. As he lay on the ground, still alive, he was savagely beaten for almost an hour. During that time, he was forced to stick his finger into his wound and wipe out the graffiti with his own blood. He was then bound and dragged through the village streets, finally thrown into the back of a jeep and rudely dumped at a local hospital. Miraculously, he lived. Tragically, this incident is not atypical. The entire drama was witnessed by an American. It has since been recorded in Western journals. Now, the point of that is not to criticize any particular people or nation or even to say that the plight of children is only terrible in war-torn areas. America is increasingly one of the most violent countries against children in the world. We kill a million and a half children every year before they're born. Twenty percent of the children in America after they are born live in poverty. One out of every girls under the age of 18, it's estimated, has probably been sexually abused by somebody close to her. A survey of 36 hospitals showed that in 10% of the pregnancies, there has been a continued use of illegal drugs. Some estimates are that 30% of all mental retardation in America is owing to fetal alcohol syndrome. 89% of the, of the teachers that were surveyed said that abuse and neglect of children is a major problem in dealing with the children in their educational pursuits. America is a violent country against children, and the home is an increasingly unsafe place for children to grow up in America, and it's the only place for them to grow up. There is no better place. It's God's will that children be in families. Now, over against this, I want to put the word of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has absolute authority over everybody's life and mind in this building. Jesus, in the words that were just read to you a minute ago, has insight into why this is, why there is so much suffering that could be alleviated, not alleviated. Why there is such a hesitancy and a a reticence to minister to children with power in our world. And this text gets right at the root of where many of us fail in ministry to children at Bethlehem.
In this text, Mark 9, 35 to 37, there are two powerful statements made by the Lord Jesus. Verse 35 is one of them. Verse 37 is the other. And between those two powerful statements, Jesus puts a child, a living child, and takes him into his arms. And we want to ask now, what are the two statements? Why are they so powerful? How do they affect us? And what's this child doing in the middle? What's the point of his taking a child and putting him between these two statements? Now, the first statement in verse 35, we must see the context of, or it won't have its proper power. The context is that the the disciples have been discussing who's the greatest, which of us is the greatest. And Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And they don't say a word. That's good. They're ashamed. Verse 34 describes that they were silent for on the way they had discussed with one another who was the greatest. Now, to that, Jesus responds like this in verse 35. He sat down. He called the twelve. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, this is very profound, what Jesus is doing here. I want you to get inside the mind of Jesus as he gets inside the heart of these disciples. What Jesus does is this. He sees something in his disciples that's in every one of you, me. He sees a quest for greatness. A quest for significance and greatness. And he sees that this quest for greatness and significance has been perverted. It's been corrupted. But instead of sweeping the whole thing, root and branch, right off the table, the quest for greatness and all of its corruption, he doesn't do that. He describes a pathway of life, in verse 35, along which, if you take it, The corruption and the perversion of the quest for greatness is stripped off and something good can be left of that quest. Nowhere in all the New Testament does Jesus ever criticize somebody for wanting to be great. Nowhere does he ever criticize anybody for wanting to be significant, for wanting to come to the end of your life and look back over your life and say, it was well spent. Feeling good about it. Nowhere does Jesus criticize a person for wanting to be significant or to be great. And I think the reason for that is because you were born with that. You were born in the image of God, a little lower than God, the psalm said, as we heard sung and as we heard read. A little lower than the angels. You were meant by God to be great. But something happened to that inborn good quest for greatness. Something horrible has happened to it in every one of us. It is rotten to the core. It is distorted and it is corrupted. Now, what, what's wrong with it? Jesus gets at this. What's wrong now with our desire for greatness? Two things. One, we are so corrupted in our desire to be great that no longer do we really desire true greatness We desire to be known as great. 
Now, it's so subtle here. It is so subtle. You might say, well, well what's, what's the difference? I mean, if you're going to be great, you're going to be known as great, right? Well, maybe or maybe not, as we'll see in a minute. The point is, is that if that, sh- if that slight shifting happens from the quest for true greatness to wanting to be known as great, if that slight shift happens, corruption happens. And it did happen in all of us. Here's the second thing that has gone wrong with the good desire for true greatness. The second thing is that we don't just desire to be great. We desire to be greater. Which one of us is the great test? They weren't discussing wherein does true Greatness and significance consist. That was not the discussion. The discussion was comparative. John, Peter, James, Nathaniel, Matthew, which one of us has the special place? And so these two corruptions have ruined what was good. Namely, the joy of living a life that is significant and great in God's eyes That joy has been replaced by a carnal pleasure in what other people think of us, if we can get them to think something nice, and the feeling that we're just a notch above the others. Just a notch. And the more the better. Now, Jesus, he's a great heart knower. He looks into the heart of these men and he loves them. He loves these corrupt, perverted glory seekers. And instead of just wiping them off, he says, I want to tell you about a pathway of life that if you follow it, will strip the corruption and strip the perversion off of your quest and leave it holy and leave it good. He leaves it. He's willing to leave it. He's willing to nurture it, cultivate it, shape it, mold it and make it what God meant it to me. That's the point. Of verse 35, the pathway along which your quest for greatness can be realized in a holy and good way so that you come to the end of your life and feel good about it is the pathway of are you willing to be the last and are you willing to serve everybody? Or are you all caught up in getting strokes, in wanting to be thought a certain way? And in making sure that you're always just a little better, doesn't have to be good necessarily, just thought better than other people are. True greatness is described in verse 35 as a pathway by which we can be freed from this slavery to having to be praised by other people. Let's take pastors, for example, here, just to bring it right home. True greatness in religious leadership is not how many people come to your church. True greatness in Christian leadership is not how many books you write. True greatness in Christian leadership is not how many radio stations carry your sermons. True greatness in Christian leadership is To what degree have the impulses of self-exaltation been crucified? 
True greatness is to what degree do you hunger and long to be a servant lifting other people into greatness? You know what that means? That definition of true greatness of Christian leadership? That means that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is absolutely essential before you pass judgment on any Christian leader across America. And I'll tell you, you need instruction because the Christian world has gone crazy in whom they regard as great. By and large, we don't know who is great. And I'll tell you why. Let me just read it. Do not, this is God talking now from 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Do not pronounce judgment before the time until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and then every man will receive his commendation from God. And only then. Beware, Christian public, how you judge your leaders. Do not judge according to human standards. Go deep like Jesus goes deep and realize that we don't have all the evidence on the table. We do not know who the truly great are. I was out to lunch here with Doug down here on Wednesday, and we were talking over at Pizza Hut about the uh, greatness of people. And about people who are serving off in Hong Kong or Singapore, out of the way, nobody's ever heard of them. And we just exalted together in the fact that when Jesus comes and the order of the lineup for the rewards is established, there are going to be people at the front of that line you have never heard of. I know. That when we line up for our well done, good and faithful servant at the last day, there are going to be people way in front of me at that line in this church that you do not know exist. You're going to say, who is she? God knows God is not so unjust as to forget your labor and love shown toward his name. Remember that one? God's watching the hidden things. God will judge me by this heart and its motives and its intentions and its discipline, not by its productivity. Therefore, by way of encouragement, Everybody is a candidate for the front of the line. Because the criteria are heart criteria. In case you missed it when I read it too fast, you mark it down. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Now let me summarize this first thing that Jesus said. If you would be first, he must be, if someone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to strip away the perversion and the corruptions of a quest for greatness, you must put yourself on the Calvary road that serves everybody and the more the better. Now, 
Before he says his second great thing, in verse 37, Jesus does something utterly unexpected, I'm sure, for the disciples. Here he is. Let's picture it. He's got the twelve here, maybe some other disciples and others kind of sitting around. People are always overhearing what Jesus said. And he stops after he says, you must serve everybody. And he kind of looks and he spots a little three-year-old out there and he says, And the three-year-old kind of looks up at her mommy, and uh, the mommy says, oh, go ahead. And so she comes in, and, and, and he just kind of puts his hand on her shoulder and pushes her into the center and just kind of lets her stand there for a minute. That's the first half of verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. So that's the first half. He put the child in the midst. So there, there she is in the midst. And then, the second half of verse 36, he doesn't just leave her standing there kind of awkward. He, he picks her up and puts her in his lap. Says he was sitting down, verse 35. He puts her in his lap and he hugs her. So it said, taking him in his arms. I looked up that Greek word for take in arms. It's all one word in Greek and it's always used for embracing, hugging. So he hugs this little girl. Now why do you do that? I mean, what's, he's talking about how to be truly great, right? He's talking about the pathway of greatness, the pathway of, of how you be last and how you be the servant of all. What's, why, why the child? What's going on here? Now, the answer is so clear that I don't think Jesus even tells you what, what the answer is. The answer goes something like this. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. Now, let me define for you some of the all. This little child is part of the all. In fact, this little child is what you just don't think is important enough. This little child represents the ministry that you guys are shrinking back from. You won't take time with this child. You look down on and despise children. You say, that's women's work. You twelve apostles all head up with seeking your glory. What I mean by putting this child on my lap is, consider working in the boys' club on Wednesday. Consider working with the girls' club. Consider serving as a primary teacher, guys. Consider serving in the nursery. I'm talking about how you serve the all in verse 35 when I take the child on my lap in verse 36. That's the connection. That's the point. But let's ask this question. Why a child? I mean, why not use a lame person, a blind person, a maimed person? It's exactly what he did in Luke 14. When you give a banquet, invite the lame, the, the blind, because they cannot pay you back. That's exactly the point here. Why a child? Invest in a child because there's no payback. They can't vote. They don't give speeches about how great your service was in Sunday school. They take you for granted. Children, among all the kinds of people in the world, are the kind that are the best litmus paper of whether you are in the quest of true greatness or whether you're still angling for the praise of men. That's why I put a child on my lap. The child won't give you the billboards and the speeches and the reputation 
he just goes right on enjoying life and assumes that you will take care of him. No kickback for glory. Now, here's the second thing Jesus says. Verse 37, and it comes as utterly unexpected to me. Let me tell you why it's unexpected to me. Because here's what I would have expected Jesus to say. He hasn't said anything yet. I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth right now in verse 36 as to why he put this child in his lap. He hasn't said anything. And, and here's what I would have expected him to say. I would have expected him to say, you guys are so wrapped up in trying to figure out who is the greatest and trying to get praise and trying to figure out how to be the big man in the tribe that you don't realize that if you would just serve a child, if you would receive a child, if you would take a child into your arms, you would be taking somebody into your arms who is more valuable than, than Caesar. And that's not what Jesus said. That's too modern. That's too modern. It's too man-centered. Here's what he said. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name, in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me in this service of children, whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, notice two things in verse 37 about what is crucial in serving and ministering to children. Number one, we must serve children, receive children, minister to children, love children, enjoy children in the name of Jesus. That's number one. Number two, in serving children, in ministering to children, in wanting to be near children, in taking children onto our lap, in, in touching children, in blessing children, our desire should be for Jesus and God. If you receive this child, you receive me. If you receive me, you receive God. Don't you want to receive God? Then receive children. The whole root of it is, do you want to receive more of God? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So why does he say this? Why does he... Why does he do this? Why does he shift all focus off of the worth of children onto the worth of God? I mean, do you ever want to say to Jesus, lighten up? Does everything in the world have to be theological? Does everything in the universe have to be related to God? Lighten up. The answer to that is yes. Everything. Jesus never lightens up on that score. Everything relates to God. Everything. Clutches. Gasoline. Belts. Suspenders. Exercycles. Shots. Food. Cereal bowls. Pajamas. Everything relates to God. If you, if you say to Jesus, lighten up. You have to relate everything to God. We're just talking about kids, for goodness sakes. We just want to get people to work in the nursery. (laughs) 
Jesus, Jesus would probably smile. He's a really gracious person. And then he would say, um, I don't lighten up. Everything is related to God. It's not heavy. <laughs> it's light. It's a wonderful thing to relate everything to God. Well, here's what somebody's going to say to that. Well, what about the children? I mean, can't we just serve children because they're children? But for the children's sake, just children. I, I think that's what somebody would say. And I think Jesus would answer like this. You serve children best when you serve them in the name of Jesus. You serve children best not when you serve a child in the child's name, not when you serve a child in mercy's name, not when you serve a child in the name of humanitarianism, not when you serve a child in the name of of the future of America, but you serve a child best when you serve the child in Christ's name. Now, we may not like it. We may want to go through our lives kind of leaving God bracketed and being good humanitarian people and not having to be so theological and God-centered all the time, but you just won't be like Jesus if you're like that. You can rear a lot of healthy, egocentric children that way if that's your goal. That's not our goal at Bethlehem. There's a second reason why I think Jesus said it would be best to serve them This way, you serve children best when you receive them, not first because of the joy you have in the child, but first because of the joy you have in God. And finally, because of the joy you have in God. That's what verse 37 is trying to get across to us. If you receive the child in your arms as a precious thing, you're receiving Jesus as a precious thing. And if you receive Jesus as precious in your life, you're receiving God as a treasure, a precious treasure in your life. And what do you want out of life? The best way to serve a child is this. Communicate to the child that the most valuable thing in the world is the all-satisfying reality and presence of the living God. That's the blessing. That's the blessing. The ultimate blessing that you can give to a child is not merely to touch him. Not merely to speak well of him. Not merely to describe a future for him. The ultimate and most valuable blessing you can give to a child is show that child that God counts. That God satisfies. And believe me, that will be caught before it is taught. That's why he says here, when you receive the child, you've got to do it a certain way. You've got to receive the child in the name of Jesus. You've got to want in and through that child God. If you don't want God, if you're not doing it in the name of Jesus, he'll grow up to be a prig. Healthy, healthy, self-centered, and godless. But if you want to make God-centered human beings out of little children, you do what verse 37 says. Namely, you go for God in the nursery.
You go for God in the clubs. You go for God in the primaries. You go for God in the juniors. You want God. The reason you embrace a child is because you want God in your arms. Let's put it all together here in conclusion. we got two great statements, verse 35 and 37, and a child in the middle. The first statement, if you would be great, you must be last of all and servant of everybody. The last statement is... If you receive a child in my name, you receive God. Now, what do those two statements have to do with each other? This is the closing arc we're going to put up over it. What do those two statements have to do with each other? What does verse 37 shed back on verse 35, this service? Here's here's one of the answers to that question. Here's what I hear. Jesus says, when I call you to serve everybody and to be the last of all, and to serve children, I'm not calling you to some heroic self-sacrifice. Look at verse 37. I'm calling you to find God. Get it? Do you see it? I'm not calling you to turn away from value. I'm, I'm saying the praise of man is a Bubble that bursts. If you want to devote your life to getting the praise of men, if you want to devote your life to getting a feeling of an inch's worth of superiority over a few other people who don't know their right hand from their left anyway and couldn't judge greatness if they saw it, if you really want to devote your life to that, you're going to throw your life away. But if you want God, if you want to hold God, If you want God for your treasure, if you want Jesus for your fellowship, your brother, your partner, your friend, your savior, your king, your all, then take a child into your arm in Jesus' name. You see, the point is, I'm not calling you to self-sacrifice. I'm calling you to treasure. I'm calling you to find true greatness and true significance in the world. That's the connection between verse 37 and 35. It's Christian hedonism to the core. It's glorious. I want you to take in the last minute here this little piece of paper from your worship folder. Would you just hold it with me? And I'll tell you how I filled mine out. And I want to urge you to fill it out. There is something on here for everybody. Quite apart from whether God's calling you at any given time to work with children But I will be very upfront. The burden of my message is to create a mindset, a theological, big sort of macro shift in the way we feel and think about service and the joy and significance and greatness of life as it relates to children. You can read about these different possibilities on the back. I checked the first blank under number one. I will examine my spiritual gifts and ask God to show me what I should do for the children of this church. I think everybody should be able to fill that out. I hesitated on the second blank under number one because I feel so uh, incapable because I know so few children's names. But I, I, in my mind, am saying to the Lord, God, I want to greet people, adults and children by name. I wish I knew more names. I wish I had a better memory. So I try to do better. And then I dropped all the way down to number six, 
And I wrote in two more. I put number one, I will bring up my sons in the nurture and discipline of the Lord. That's the most fundamental commitment to children I have in the world. And number two, I put down, I will do my best to equip adults to seek God in receiving children. That's what I've been trying to do this morning. And I'll keep on trying to do it as God leads. Now, we're not going to take these up in this service. There is a table. Children's Ministries table, box on it, right over there in the corner of the commons. And I really want to encourage you to fill these out and put it in. God may be calling some of you this morning to invest in children in ways you hadn't planned on when you came into this room. Lined up uh, on either side of the platform here at the front are going to be a two, three, four teams of, of praying people. They have little, little tags on so you know who they are. And I just invite some of you to stay behind for prayer. I ask the Lord to move on you in three ways, one relating to each verse this morning. And I close with this. Some of you, according to verse 35, need to have the addiction to people's approval and praise broken in your life. You are compulsively in pursuit of other people's approval and praise and glory. And you need to be free. You need to be set free. There's a glory to be invisible. There's a glory in being invisible. I just, I, I just have to stick this in. Yesterday I went out and marched with pro-lifers, about 75 or 100 of them over there. And, and I just had my hat pulled down and my coat on and I was holding my sign. And I was just one of the group. Until Brian asked me to pray. But I was just one of the group. And, and as I walk back and forth, invisible, nobody knows, John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, preaches to this big group of people. And as I walked and prayed, I said, Lord, I'm given to this cause. I don't care if I'm the only person in the world. I love this cause. Children ought not to be killed in this building. And it, there was a sense that flooded over me of approval from the Lord that I was invisible there. I felt good about it. I'm not often invisible, but it felt good there. Just have my hat down, just walking with my little sign, saying, me too, me too. Now, that's, I think that's just a little glimmer of what all of us long for. We want to be real. We want to be real with God. God's all that matters. If, if nobody else knows, phooey, it doesn't matter, right? So that's my first prayer, that you be liberated. And the second prayer, verse 36, is that some of you... Discover in the presence of children that you are so emotionally bound up, you can't pick a child up and hug a child and kiss a child. It's so contrary to the way you are that you're exposed in the presence of children. And you need to be healed. And they'd love to pray with you about that. And the third, verse 37, is some of you have heard me talk about receiving God as a treasure as a friend, as a lover, as a satisfier of your soul, and you're scratching your head saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I just do my work for God. And you need to discover God as a treasure in your life. Let's pray. Father, grant that prayers would ascend and be answered in power now at the end of this service, and that you would dismiss us with an anointing from on high, that we might be freed from our passion to be praised by men, 
and that we might love and be freed emotionally to kiss and to hug and to love children and that we might be addicted to God as the living water and the bread of heaven. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus, and all the people said, Amen.